Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. You know, there are those, um, there are those moments in your lives when, quote, you didn't see it coming. I remember, I, I, grew up in a, I grew up in a family of voracious readers. My mother in particular was an incredible reader. And it was in, it was in sixth grade when I, I, I ventured into one of the books that she was reading. Now, uh, just a little bit of backstory. My, my mom tends to like things that are, you know, uh, uh, huh, like crazy, okay? And what I mean is, is she loved like Dean R. Coots, right? Or Stephen King. Like, this is what she loves to read. Why, we can pray for her. Like, I don't know why, but I remember, and this is like sixth grade, stumbling across a book by the name Cujo. And I remember asking my mother, like, hey, uh, what's this book about? And my mom, I think, trying to sort of just shelter me a little bit, like, oh, it's, it's about a St. Bernard. <laughs> awesome. So, you know, as a sixth grader, you're like, I can, read a, I can read a book about a dog, right? And then, then, then when you read Cujo by Stephen King, can I, can I just say, you don't see it coming at all. Like, as a sixth grade boy, there's no way you can imagine in your mind what Stephen King writes in those words, right? We just, we just have moments like that when, quote, we didn't see it coming. Maybe for you, it's when you watched The Sixth Sense, right? And you get to the end of the film, you think, didn't see that coming at all. Or maybe it's your, your shy and timid kid who gets up and absolutely slays like Taylor Swift's love story in front of hundreds of kids, right? And you're thinking like, I didn't see that one coming either. Or maybe, maybe it's when Jesus makes out of cords a whip and starts whipping cattle out of the temple. And you think, you know, <laughs> honestly, didn't see it coming. Like we don't have in kind of the, the praise song library that song. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, we don't put together on a Sunday morning, like, yeah, he got some whips, uh, you know, and he got some, I mean, we just don't do it at all. Like, it's, it's didn't see it coming kinds of things. Now, church, we are on this pilgrimage, right? Ancient spiritual practice of journeying, journeying for spiritual significance. And as we journey with Jesus, as he walks towards the fulfillment of the Father's rescue mission, we are stopping along the way in order to look and to listen and to learn so that this journey through the work of God's Holy Spirit will help conform us into the image of Jesus so that we will become people of love. You know, said another way, what we learn along the way on this journey, what we learn about him, what we learn about his kingdom, what we learn about ourselves. Friends, this is, this is the fertile ground of spiritual growth. And today, today we find ourselves in the temple in Jerusalem, not to learn about worship, but to listen and learn as Jesus loses his ever-living mind. So uh, let's get with that together. You're going to want a Bible, uh, whether you're bringing your own or the one that we provide. And I want us to get to John chapter 2, John chapter 2, starting at verse 13. John chapter 2, starting at verse 13. So going through Matthew and Mark and Luke, get past those, get to John chapter 2, uh, verse 13. Now, as you get there, I want to address just quickly what may feel like an incongruence 
between John's gospel and the other gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You see, the other gospel writers place this narrative of Jesus in the temple, turning over tables and scattering coins. They place that narrative near the end of their gospels. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem to the shouts of Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew and Mark and Luke all place this narrative at the beginning of the Holy Week events. John, however, places this narrative in chapter 2 at the beginning of his gospel. And just so we're clear, this is not, it is not a discrepancy between the gospel writers. In fact, we've said this before, but it bears repeating. So let me say it again. John, John is not writing his gospel to give us a chronological account of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're pretty much writing their gospels chronologically as the story lays out. John is not. So John doesn't need the events of Jesus' life to line up in sequential order. The other three writers choose to do it, but John doesn't. John, John is essentially laying out the evidence, kind of like a court case. He's laying out the evidence that will prove his point. And what is his point? Well, we get that in John chapter 20, verse 31. Here's what John writes. He says, these things are written. So when he says these things are written, he's talking about all of his gospel up to that point, right? All of the stories he's telling, all of the narratives of Jesus, all these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. John is writing his gospel, laying out the evidence like a court case to prove this point. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And when we believe that, we will have life. In other words, John is making the case that Jesus is God's Son. And John believes, John believes that in order to make his case, To make the best argument possible, it's important for him to place this narrative of Jesus right at the beginning of his gospel. And friends, as we unpack the text this morning, we'll see why that is true. So here we go, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem And in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now, let's pause for just a second. Uh, People exchanging money and selling cattle in the courts of the temple is normative practice in the temple of Jesus' day. Why? Here it is. Animals, animals were needed for the sacrificial offering of Jewish worship. And pilgrims were coming from all over Israel to worship in Jerusalem at the temple. Sometimes those pilgrims are traveling on foot 70, 80, or 90 miles. 
And so when they arrived then at the temple, they would buy their animal then for sacrifice rather than trying to drive an animal 90 miles on foot from their home. So in all reality, what's happening in the temple, both in the exchange of money and the buying of cattle, it was built as a practical way for Jews to offer sacrifice at the temple without having to sacrifice too much along the way. It's also true that the temple had its own currency. So it wasn't the currency of the land, but there was a temple currency. And so in order to buy said animals for said offering, you had to exchange your money into temple currency. And as you can imagine, there was a small fee for making that exchange of money. And when you went to buy the animal, a small upcharge, because you're buying out of convenience rather than bringing from your home. Again, all normative. This is what happened. But what Jesus saw that day, something was different. Uh, Something had changed. The temple, and more specifically the temple courts, were no longer about worship and prayer, but about transaction and marketplace value. And so what does Jesus do? (laughs) It's that whole I didn't see it coming bit, right? Uh, Jesus doesn't be like, oh, excuse me, sorry to bother you, but it's kind of getting in the way of worship, so if you guys could just, you know, just get on out. Like, that's not what he does at all, right? This is what we read, verse 15. So, he made a whip out of cords. Now, I don't know about you, but I automatically see like an Indiana Jones hat, right, and a lasso. Like, this is just what happens. I'm just going to be honest. Jesus makes a whip out of cords. Here it is. And he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and the cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Jesus is going like all Yellowstone here, right? Now, just quickly, let's note, uh, Jesus, just so we're clear, Jesus uses the whip on cattle, not people, okay? I don't want us to get the wrong idea. I mean, Jesus did make a whip, and he is using it, but he's using it on cattle, not people. The language in the text is really, really clear. Also notice, Jesus doesn't chide the worshiper Only the market sellers. So he doesn't rebuke those who are there for worship and prayer, but only those who are there to sell. This is important. What Jesus recognizes here is there are things that can easily get in the way of worship. There are things that can easily get in the way of worship, the worship of a God who's created, who saves, who sustains. What Jesus sees in this day are the things that are getting in the way of the worship for God's people. You know, uh, in our home, we vacuum our house once a week, and I'm, I'm floored 
by how much dirt we pick up in a week. Like, we, we are relatively clean people, and presently, right, it's relatively dry outside, so we're not dragging in a whole bunch of stuff, but somehow, little by little, unbeknownst to us, we can fill a vacuum with the amount of dirt that simply accumulates in seven days. Jesus looks at the temple, the place of Israel's worship, and historically, the place where God's presence has dwelled, and he sees how dirty it's become. Dirty, I suspect, in the same way that our house becomes dirty in the course of seven days. Dirty little by little and seemingly unbeknownst to us. And so what's Jesus doing here when he makes a whip out of cords and he overturns the tables and he scatters the coins? He's doing this simply. He's cleaning house. And he's doing it in a rather dramatic fashion, but he's cleaning house. The religious authority, they're obviously gobsmacked, and they wonder, like, who gave you the authority to clean house? Like, who gave you the keys to the house and let you in with all your cleaning supplies, all your whips and things, right? In fact, they want Jesus to prove that he has authority. So listen, verse 18, what sign, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Now, church, this is where we get to the real heart of the narrative, I believe. Jesus answers them. He says, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. Now, you, you can almost hear between the period after days and what comes next, you can almost hear the confusion, right? The long pause of the religious authority, and then what I imagine sort of a laughing out loud, like, bro, bro, the temple took 46 years to construct, right? And you're going to raise it in three days, no more fermented figs for you, right? Like, you can almost hear it in the religious authority. Now, the Jews, friends, the Jews were familiar with temples being built and then broken and then built again and then broken and then built again. The original temple built by Solomon, dreamt up by David, that temple was destroyed in 586 BC when the Babylonians come in and God's people are taken into exile. And then when God's people return from exile, it's rebuilt, and then it's extensively renovated several centuries later by Herod the Great. And then in 70 AD, Rome's going to come in and destroy the temple again. So when Jesus suggests that he can raise up a new temple in three days, they literally think the brother is loco. Like, they, they just think he's crazy. But there's more here than just a building that goes up and comes down and goes up again. You see, if we're going to back up into the very beginning of the Gospel of John, John is already at the very beginning laying hints to make his case. You know, I said earlier that the temple has been historically the place of Israel's worship. And perhaps more importantly, it's the place of worship because it is the place where God's presence dwelt. 
In fact, if we back up all the way into the Old Testament, his presence dwelled in the tabernacle. This was a, a tent that went with Israel as they wandered around. And whenever they stopped, they would set up this tent, and God's glory and his presence would descend into that tent. And then when the, when the temple is built under Solomon, God's glory, his presence literally descending into that space. Well, John, at the very beginning of his gospel, in gospel chapter one, he says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14, he says, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Eugene Peterson would translate this, that the Word became flesh and He, he moved into the neighborhood. If we were going to translate this literally, it would say the Word became flesh and He pitched His tent in our midst. Now, what is John doing when he uses this phrase, he pitched a tent in our midst? He's resting on the history of Israel, or in the tent or the tabernacle, God's presence dwelled. So what is John saying? John is saying, in the person of Jesus, we have a new temple. This is the place, actually, where God's presence is dwelling. It's God's presence with flesh looks like you and me. He, and he is in, quite literally, our midst. And so when we come then to chapter 2, and Jesus answers the religious authority, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days, Jesus isn't talking about the building in which they're having this conversation. He's talking rather about the temple that is his body. He's talking about the events that are to come. You know, when we began the season of Lent, we began in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where Luke writes that Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus turned his whole attention, his whole person to the events that are going to happen in Jerusalem, namely that of a cross and a resurrection. That is the inevitable end of the journey that Jesus is on. And here in this conversation, it's not about the temple in which they're standing. Jesus can already see the inevitable end and say, listen, this temple's going to be destroyed. And in three days, we're going to raise it up again. Already pointing to the events that are to come. The events when the temple and God's presence stretched out for the world to see, destroyed by a crown of thorns and interestingly whips and a spear in the side, a temple destroyed and buried, a temple brought to the ground. And yet Jesus can see that in three days that same temple will rise and there will be new life 
new life for you, and new life for me. See, Jesus comes into the temple courts this day to clean house. And it begs the question that if Jesus were in the temple courts of our hearts, would He see hearts that are bent towards worship and prayer? Are hearts that are easily distracted from it. As Jesus rides into the temple courts of our hearts, is he turning over tables and scattering coin? You know, St. Paul later in the New Testament would say to those people who are trying to orient their lives around the words and the ways of Jesus, St. Paul would say, don't you know? Don't you, don't you realize that you, faithful brother and sister in Christ, that you are a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have God residing in you. So if Jesus came riding into the temple courts of your heart or into mine, would he be turning over tables, cleaning house? I suspect that as we think about our own hearts, as we look honestly and truthfully at what's in us, we're going to discover that like our home, it's gotten kind of dirty, little by little, and probably unbeknownst to us. So when Jesus rides into the temple courts of our hearts, He cleans house. How? By destroying the temple and raising it up in three days by dying and rising. In that work of Christ Jesus, you and I have hearts that are not dirty, but clean. Friends, this is good news. It's really good news. probably like my house, as we leave here today, we're going to pick up little bits of dirt, little by little, probably unbeknownst to us, and we'll find again that we need a cleaning. But Jesus in His faithfulness and His goodness will come day in and day out to make sure that our hearts are clean. You know, a pilgrimage is a journey, a journey for spiritual significance, an opportunity to stop and to listen and to look and to learn. And today we stop at this space where Jesus goes all Indiana Jones, to stop and to listen, to look and to learn, 
that we have a God who cleans house. God, who in his own work will bring life to you and to me. You know, I said that John, when he writes his gospel, the point of writing his gospel is that he would lay out the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Certainly here in chapter 2, John wants us to recognize God's presence in the person of Jesus and His work for all of humanity, that you and I might have life in His name. I don't imagine that any of the people that day saw it coming. In Jesus' glorious name, amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, guard and keep our hearts in Christ Jesus today and every day. Amen.